Hello, and welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. My name is Michael LeBlanc, and I am your host. I believe in the power of storytelling to bring the retail industry to life. Each week, I'll bring insights, perspectives, and experiences from the retail industry's most innovative and influential voices. Today, we have a special treat in store for you as we sit down with Cassie Holmes, a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, a social psychologist, and author of Happier Hour, how to beat distraction, expand your time, and focus on what matters most. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be inspired as Cassie provides us with the antidote to overscheduling and feeling like your days aren't your own. Cassie, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing this afternoon? Wonderful. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Well, it is uh, my pleasure. Where, where am I finding you this afternoon? Well, this afternoon, I am in Toronto, Canada, but my home base is in Santa Monica, California. Oh, fantastic. You know, uh, I'm in Toronto, Canada, so we're in the same place. How funny is oh, that? wonderful. Well, it's sunny, but more brisk than I'm used to. Oh, yeah, it is a little bit brisk. Now, what, what brings you to Toronto? Um, I'm giving a talk today about my book, Happier Hour, at the Rotman School of Business. Well, as it happens, I'm a graduate of the Rotman School of Business. You and I are off to a great start already. We uh, <laughs> yes, so much in common already. Um, we've, we've kind of jumped right in. Let's uh, let's start uh, where we should probably start, which is tell us a bit about yourself. Who are you, and uh, what's your background, and, and what do you do for a living? Yeah, so I am a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. Um, And throughout my career, I have been researching the role of time for happiness. And in the last few years, I've pulled together a lot of the research findings and developed a course and have been teaching it called Applying the Science of Happiness to Life Design. And I've been teaching this to MBAs and executive MBAs um, about exactly that. Basically, how do we invest our time so that we feel happy in our days and aligning um, those pursuits and our careers and life overall um, with our broader goals um, so that we feel more satisfied with our lives. And it's working. My students are significantly happier as a result, um, more satisfied in their careers and um, applying the insights myself. I can absolutely attest to the fact that it works. I'm pretty darn happy. All of which is fantastic. Now, let me ask you this. uh, What got you to, did you always want to be an academic? Did you always want to teach? Were you the, you know, the kind of person in the sandbox who was saying we could do this more efficiently? Like, tell me a bit how you wound up doing what you do. Yeah, it's actually because I like observing people Mm. and understanding what makes us tick, what makes us happier and feel better and more motivated in our lives. And through the observation, what really drove me into this uh, career was the research Mm. aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And then I had no idea that I would end up having a profession that involved teaching because public (laughs) speaking was truly my phobia. Mm. And now the fact that I do it so often is sort of funny, but I actually works because I'm so excited about what I'm sharing. Um, And so if I have any opportunity to tell folks about the research so that they can feel happier, it's such a delight and I'm happy to do so. Now, was it happenstance that you do that in a business or an MBA program? I'm sure doctors and dentists and lots of professionals professionals could use your advice. Is, is it just kind of happenstance or did you point yourself that way? 
Well, basically the research that I do in my training is as a social psychologist. So um, sort of understanding what circumstances, what decisions um, influence um, our judgments and behavior and emotions more broadly. But I was, uh, I did my PhD at a business school and have been in a business school um, because I was interested and continue to be interested, not just understanding the psychology, but really applying it, applying it so that um, organizations can figure out how to make their employees more motivated and satisfied um, in their careers. And for actually my PhD and the department I'm in at a business school is a marketing department. So it's really understanding how to connect with consumers mm. in a way that they feel more fulfilled in their um, sort of relationships with the brands that they're using and in their consumption behavior. So before we dive into this excellent book, Happier Hour, I, I've had a chance to read it. It's a wonderful book. I can't pass up on this opportunity to tap into your wisdom, as you said, social psychologist. I, I want to talk to you about the times we're living in today. So, you know, we're in some quasi post-COVID world. We've got a new hybrid workplace, which on the one hand makes, you know, there's good productivity. On the other hand, it makes it difficult to connect socially. I think particularly for probably your students, right? They don't get the mentoring, the tutoring, the culture. You know, a lot of folks meet their partners and friends in the workplace. Maybe that's a little harder. I mean, we've got social media. We've got, you know, I, I, you call it happiness. I've heard it called subjective well-being before. What do, what do you observe with your students and, you know, in your academic research? What's the state of happiness in where we are today? And, and are, you, are you optimistic or are you, are you worried? Yeah, and it's a really good question, and I'm actually glad you pointed to what I even mean when I use the term happiness. And I do mean what um, us researchers refer to as subjective well-being, which includes both feeling more positive emotion, the negative emotion in our day-to-day, as well as greater satisfaction about our lives overall. So it's not just the sort of flippant passing feeling. It's really the sense that we are satisfied, fulfilled, have a sense of meaning in our lives. I will say that I am optimistic, as, and I will explain why. What's interesting is that prior to the pandemic, I used to have to motivate why happiness is important. Oh, um, I used to share all the studies that show that it's neither a frivolous nor is it a selfish pursuit because when we feel happy, it makes us show up better at work. It makes us more adaptive um, in our problem solving, more creative, um, more engaged employees. It helps us in our relationships because when we feel happier, um, we are nicer. <laughs> We're more likely to help others out. And it even helps us with respect to health. But honestly, because the last couple of years have taught us that we can't take our emotional well-being for granted with burnout rates as high as they are, anxiety rates as high as there are. None of us take our happiness for granted anymore, nor do managers, nor do you know businesses. And so I don't even have to motivate it. Mm. Also, time, that other thing that I research, the pandemic has taught us just how fragile life is. Um, and, you know, the hours of our days add up to the years of our life. And so everyone seems to be trying to figure out now, how do we invest these hours in our days to make it so that we feel 
and experience our lives as satisfying and meaningful. Mm. And the good news is that there are answers. And I, you know, I've been doing this research for the last 15 years, well before the pandemic. And I'm so happy that I've now sort of have the book ready where I sort of pulled together mm-hmm. a lot of the answers from the research to help people do this, to know how do we spend our time so that our days are feeling worthwhile and minimizing the amount of time that feels like a waste so that at the end of the weeks, we can look back and feel satisfied and fulfilled and look back on our lives, honestly, without regret. And then that first part, I, I hadn't connected those two. It's a really interesting point because it really connects back to you know, what business people sometimes look at, which is productivity, right? That the two are intimately connected, that they're not, they're not different concepts. The hap- what you're doing is connecting you know, happiness, subjective well-being, and, and productivity. So they all, one plus one equals three kind of thing by the, by the sound yeah. of what you're describing, right? And it's interesting because time management, actually, which is how some mm. um, describe uh, my, my book and my work, um, historically, or I think many people think of it just about productivity and really mm-hmm. actually more about efficiency. How can I get more done yeah, yeah. more quickly? But I actually suggest that we alter the outcome or the goal in how we manage or invest our time Mm -hmm. towards a greater sense of satisfaction and fulfillment, spending more on what's worthwhile rather than just being driven by efficiency. Um, Productivity and having a sense of productivity and progress absolutely contributes to our overall satisfaction and fulfillment um, but like, honestly, my goal is that people feel satisfied in their lives and to the extent that I can help them invest in ways that do make them feel productive, but more importantly, spending in ways that feel worthwhile, which also incorporates time outside of work, you know, like investing in those relationships that are absolutely um, so important to our mm-hmm. satisfaction and well-being and you can't you can't sort of or when you're thinking about the long term in terms of uh us thriving within our careers and our lives you can't forfeit or neglect um the other aspects of our lives like the relationships like taking care of ourselves with respect to health like exercise or sleep um because when you sacrifice those then ultimately you're not <laughs> you're going to burn out and not be productive anyway. So. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because what you're talking about is is don't measure the wrong thing. And, and what you say it's yeah. so interesting because I, as I continue to to reflect on what you've been saying, I mean, I've been reading from from folks like uh, Scott Galloway. He talks about you know this one in seven uh, men. I think he says in America don't have a friend, a single friend. I mean, how do you how do you achieve happiness? You know this this crisis of loneliness. So I'm yeah. glad, I'm glad to hear your. Uh, you're thinking that there's uh, there's optimism ahead. Now let's. Let, I want to get into the tradecraft of you writing a book because I think this is your first actual book, so to speak. Of course, as an academic, you would be publishing papers, and I'm sure you're you're well published. But uh, what was that like? How did you approach writing? Because it's a different thing, right? I have I have a I have a podcast <laughs> partner who's a, who's a, a he's a PhD as well. We, he's the food professor, and he often we often talk about you know there's 
I, things I need to do to publish, and that's a whole different world than writing books. How did you approach it? Did you did you set a I need to write number of words per day, or did you have a thesis for writing? Like, just t- give me a bit of insight to that. Oh my gosh, it was definitely there was a learning curve. Mm. Um, it took me, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> a good year to mm. write the first chapter yeah. and then another six months um, <laughs> to write the remaining eight chapters. And, and, um, I, and I bet and, you bang out academic papers like in half a day of similar length, right? I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, because, because I got it wrong. That first chapter, mm. I wrote mm. it. I like my training and my experiences writing for academic journals where it is absolutely about making an argument and then supporting it with the research. And then when I submitted my first chapter, which I was so proud of and had spent so long on to my editor, she was like, um, no, nobody, you know, will want to read this. Like, and, and and then I basically had to relearn and it was, it proved to be a question of showing Mm. rather than telling. And the showing comes through stories and anecdotes. And it's actually, instead of starting with an argument and supporting it by research is actually learning how to tell stories so that people care and then concluding with the point from the research. And so in the book, I'm actually proud that I have, heard from readers that it is very readable Mm -hmm. and engaging Mm -hmm. because I (laughs) I told stories. And then when my editor was like, you need stories, I was like, well, what stories? And then I realized, (laughs) well, actually, since I'm living this stuff, there's a lot of my own personal stories in it. And there's a lot of stories from my students um, Mm -hmm. and their experience in applying the insights. So it was a process, and I very much appreciate you asking the question. Well, I, I think you nailed it because it's a very engaging. I, I, I mean, it's a very good read, so congratulations. I mean, the whole book is, is you know, that nice, that art and science of telling a story that you can relate to with relatable examples. I want to get to this idea, and I've had this theory for many, many years. I used to be in, you know, I'm writing marketing, you know, I was a marketer for a long time, still are, and, you know, it would be like, this is... We're addressing the time-starved, fill-in-the-blank person. And I always used to think, is that an artificial construct? Because it feels like over the decades, if you and I were to compare what it took for our parents and grandparents to get things done, like shopping five days a week or, you know, versus e-commerce today, it's shipped to your door. Like, I, I can give you a dozen examples of things that are really well easier in our lives that save us amounts of time where did all that time go is it is it this cult of we used to call it a cult of busyness we had an elevator we go up and down in the building and when you got in the elevator you say hey how's it going everybody goes oh busy 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 because you you felt like if you didn't say busy Mm -hmm. you'd be like how's it going ah nothing it's kind of a slow day people kind of look at you sideways and like really so what do you think of this idea that it's an artificial construct that it's in our it's in our heads or is it is it real is our life's really accelerated and and Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So our sense of time starving, or I refer to it as time poverty, is a feeling. It's a subjective sense. It's an acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And I think the reason that we feel so time poor or time starved these days is because of the amount an endless possibility of things that we can be and feel like we should be doing at any second. FOMO. And all about FOMO. 
Totally. And it, it's exacerbated um, by technology. Basically, our cell phones, you know, our smartphones mm-hmm. that exist in our pockets so that at any and every moment, we can be seeing all the other things that people are doing that they're posting on social media. And it looks so fun because, of course, they're posting those, like, perfectly fun, smiley moments. But also, there's, like, we can do anything at any moment. Like, I can watch a TV show from my phone at any point. I can take a course from my phone at any point. I can, you know, like attend a concert or visit a museum from my phone at any point. You can, I can, you can call a friend at any point. I forget sometimes you can do that on a phone. Yeah, you can call a friend. You can also check items off your to-do list. Like you can go grocery shopping on your phone at any yeah. point. So yeah. all of this with time, feeling time poor is this feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. Of course, we don't have enough hours in the day to do everything that we have come to sort of believe that we can and should be doing. And so it is a construct. And the good thing is that it being a sort of social construct is that it's something that we can also, since it's constructed and moldable, we can mold it ourselves and become more intentional about, Mm. okay, what are the things that I actually want to be doing and feel like I should be doing, being intentional um, about those activities that are actually worthwhile and not just being reactive um, and reacting to all the sort of possibilities Mm -hmm. and incoming um, pings and requests and um, opportunities. And so I also want to touch on your, your note about sharing the fact that we feel busy It's interesting because, yes, there is research that shows that um, busyness has become somewhat of a status symbol because Mm -hmm. it signals Mm -hmm. that you are important. Yeah, you're important. You're in high demand. But what's interesting is in some of my current research um, with Maria Trupia, we have actually found that when people tell others they're busy, it while people are actually saying it, intending to express that they are stressed and overwhelmed and sort of looking to connect by being um, vulnerable and sharing that uh, level of stress, what people actually hear is that you are communicating your importance. Mm. So (laughs) be careful when people ask, how are you doing? When you say you're feeling busy, then they hear you telling them how important you are, even though that wasn't your intent. Interesting. I want to pull on one thread uh, specifically, and you mentioned it several times in the book about mobile phones. I, I feel like there are buildings full of people who are very smart psychologists whose job it is to design apps that really get to our base needs, and it makes it very difficult to put the phone down, is, is, is to, to detach from that app. I mean, you know the stories about Netflix, right? They, they, it all changed for them when they automatically played the next episode as opposed uh-huh. to having to you do something as simple as, say, play next episode. Can this distraction war be won? There seems like a lot of forces against us in terms of trying to get us to use those things and to you know, really, really attract or you know, really get to our base needs that we don't even understand ourselves. Yeah, it absolutely can be one. And the the person who can win it for each of us is ourselves, 
right? Because what the companies are doing, they want you to be engaged, but they're choosing for you to be engaged in their particular product. And you want to be engaged in whatever it is that you choose to spend your time on, but you need to be the one to choose what are those activities that you want to engage in and spend your time on. And so again, it's about being purposeful and prioritizing. First, actually, in the book, I share um, lots of exercises to help people identify for themselves what are those activities that are most worthwhile. And then once you recognize, okay, these are the things that I want to carve out time for, protect time for, spend time on, then it's also up to you to manage your engagement in those activities. And so for those most important activities where you don't want to be distracted is make them a no phone zone. So put your phone away because what your phone with the incoming pings um, will do is pull you out of whatever activity you mm-hmm. are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think absolutely, yes, it requires some deliberation and some intentionality and choice. But all of us have choice in where we spend our time and how we spend our time. We also have choice in our attention during that time. And it is as simple as putting your phone away so that you aren't distracted Mm. during those important times that you're spending. I mean, I I feel sometimes like there's people, as I said, in buildings thinking anthropologically, you know, every time I hear a ding, I think I'm in a jungle and something's going to eat me. So I have to pay attention to it. You know, that that wiggle reflex we used to have when we were designing websites, just make it move a little bit because that'll get your attention. Uh, so it, it's an uphill battle. Let's let's take a quick step back. You know, we've been talking about uh, your book, but tell me about the, I, I've described it like an operating manual for, for happiness, but I, I want to hear your description of it, kind of the thesis and the process in the book, just to just to kind of nail it in a couple of sentences so people have a really good flavor of, of how the book flows and how you've constructed it. Yeah, so it's based off of the research informing people how to invest the hours of their days so that they can feel more joy in the moments, look back on their days and their weeks with greater satisfaction and fulfillment, and look back ultimately on their lives without regret. And through that, there's exercises that lead us to or lead each individual to identify what are those ways of spending that are worthwhile? What are those ways of spending that are a waste? And um, sort of how to make the most of those Mm. worthwhile times, as well as how to minimize the waste, or actually in some cases is either sort of reframe the time so that, uh, so the bundling strategy, for example, is like, yes, there are things that we need to do in our lives, like chores, that aren't necessarily fun, but we have to do. And simply by bundling those unfun times with an activity you do enjoy, then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden that time feels less wasteful and more worthwhile. But I also really encourage folks to take a broader perspective of their time, thinking about their lives overall, thinking about what ultimately matters. What is your own individual purpose, your own individual set of values, so that taking that broader perspective and thinking about our years overall, 
what that does is really clarify and inform how we should be spending our hours today. You, uh, I want to touch on another example. You talk about something, time crafting strategy. And one of the things I've been picking up on, and it was a COVID thing that seems to be continuing with folks working at home, is this idea of a faux commute. In other words, I'm going to get up in the morning, I'm working for my home office, but I'm going to go for that drive through for a cup of coffee. Just to kind of, I think it's, it's partially um, a routine and it's also partially, partially that's my time where I can mm-hmm. just get myself organized for the day. Do you approve of, of such strategies? And is that what you mean by time crafting strategies? Yeah, that's it. It's, it's really wonderful because it sounds like being intentional of recognizing that mm. this was a time that sort of bookended the beginning and end of your day, the commute, um, and recognizing the aspects of that that you miss. I probably, it's not sitting in traffic or I don't I know if that. you take the metro, like, yeah. you know, elbowing people on the train, but it is that time that is your time. And so mm. to the extent that you can create and carve out and ritualize even some of those routines um, to make the time, to have that time and to make that time um, more refreshing or rejuvenating or worthwhile. Yeah. And with the time crafting, that's sort of the second to last chapter where based off of all of the strategies throughout the book is basically how do you put them together to design your ideal week? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, it's fun to hear that that's uh, one of your uh, sort of crafting strategies um, that you employ. Well, my guest is Cassie Holmes. The book is Happier Hour. It's available uh, today. It's available everywhere where you love to uh, love to buy your books. Cassie, how can folks uh, follow your work? I'm sure you continue to do this work. Uh, where can they get in touch with uh, what you do on an ongoing basis and kind of keep in touch yeah. with the latest? Yeah. So, I mean, my website, CassieMHolmes.com, is up to date with my latest research and where I am speaking and that that sort of thing. Um, (laughs) Unfortunately, I don't spend, or fortunately, intentionally, I don't spend a ton of time on social media. So you won't really find me other than on LinkedIn. Um, But my website, and honestly, in the book, I did my best to bring together all of the ideas and takeaways so that folks can apply it mm. and benefit from uh, my research as well as others, um, you know, immediately yeah. Yeah, in their yeah. lives. Well, listen, it's, it's, it's a great book. I'd recommend it to everybody. I, I had a, a laugh when I, I knew you were an academic because there's 40 pages of notes and, and <laughs> act, uh, in, a, in a novel. So I knew you were, you had an academic. So congratulations of breaking free from the constraints of, uh, of publishing <laughs> and getting the best of both worlds. Thanks so much for joining me on the Voice Retail Podcast. Been a real treat chatting with you. I learned a lot. Love the book and hope to put it into into uh, into use myself. So listen, safe travels. Welcome to Toronto and and safe travels and enjoy your time here and, and safe travels back home. Oh, thanks so much. This was a treat. Thanks for tuning into this special episode of The Voice of Retail. If you haven't already, be sure and click and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so new episodes will land automatically. And check out my other retail industry media properties, The Remarkable Retail Podcast, Conversations with Commerce Next Podcast, and The Food Professor Podcast with Dr. Sylvain Charlevoix. Last but not least, if you're into barbecue, check out my all-new YouTube barbecue show, Last Request Barbecue, with new episodes each and every week. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, president of Emmy LeBlanc Company and Maven Media. And if you're looking for more content or want to chat, follow me on LinkedIn or visit my website at emmyleblanc.co. 
Have a safe week, everyone.